0: I'm Rebecca Rothstein, and along with my co-host, Leanne Daly, we'd like to welcome you to Say It Forward. Each week, we'll be doing one of my favorite things to do, and that's interviewing interesting people with out-of-the-ordinary life stories. They're all people who took a different path in life. Some never imagined the heights they would achieve, and others, well, they turned their childhood dreams into reality. So let's begin. Today, I'm very pleased to welcome Jonathan Koch into our studio. As president and chief executive officer of Asylum Entertainment, which is a extremely prolific television company in Los Angeles, Jonathan has been involved with and has created thousands of hours of content across multiple genres. In January 2015, during a sales conference in Washington, D.C., Jonathan fell ill. He was so sick that the doctors put him in a coma to save his life. A few harrowing weeks later, he woke up with both mind and spirit intact. However, his body was severely compromised from the effects of septic shock. He resolved not only to survive, but to thrive. So let's rewind to the beginning and say it forward with Jonathan Koch. We would like to begin at the beginning. What's your early
1: story? I was born in Cleveland, Ohio, and I think I moved when I was six months old to State College, Pennsylvania, which was kind of a cruel joke because I was raised a Browns fan, (laughs) but I lived in the heart of Steeler country during... The worst of it. Oh, there, that's harsh.
2: <laughs> that's harsh. And, um,
1: I got beaten up a lot and pushed into lockers for wearing my, you know, yeah, Brown's you, jacket you you around. But I really did anyway because. You wore your
0: jersey, but yeah. you were so likable. Nobody killed you. No, no, they
1: did. They tried to kill me, but there was, that was just <laughs> one of the reasons why they tried to kill me. But, um, it lasted a long time, you know. So I grew up in State College, Pennsylvania. My father was a traveling salesman for a clothing company and State College's dead center in Pennsylvania. So he was able to access all of his territories that way.
0: How old were you when you left Pennsylvania?
1: 20.
0: Oh, so you were a full adult when you left there. I mean,
2: M- I mostly. guess
1: so. As much of an adult as we <laughs> yeah. can 20, actually I call so. hey, I don't know if I behave that well. <laughs> uh, I graduated from Shippensburg University um, in 1987. And a few days later, I was in California. A friend of mine had made the drive down the 101 on a sort of getaway and they stopped in Calabasas, California at this place called the Red Robin restaurant. <laughs> and while they were there having lunch, they said, "You know, could we get an application for employment?" and they sent it to me and I filled it out in genetics class at Shippensburg University and I was assured that there would be a job here, so I didn't have any money. I get on a plane. I leave everything I have behind, which is nothing. So I don't want anybody to think that was, you know, a dramatic <laughs> choice on my part. Um, Just your Browns yeah like right? I, I, yeah, <laughs> the call like, to
2: adventure I, though, right?
1: Um, I didn't really know what it was. I met somebody when I was in college who identified the fact that maybe, or at least told me that I really needed to go out someplace and challenge myself and then I could come home and be king, which was an interesting perspective. i obviously never went home and I know a lot more now about what she was talking about because life here is more challenging just from a pace standpoint and so forth. But I move out here and I get to the Red Robin. I have $200 in my pocket that I moved here with and they don't have a job available for me as a waiter, which is what I applied to be. So they said, well, we do have a position available if you want it. You can start right now, but you're going to be the Red Robin, you know, in the costume. (laughs) So... You know, at that time, you know I'm six one, two thirty five. Like I've been wrestling. Yeah, I mean, you know, and I'm I'm in this Red Robin costume, which just is does not smell great. And I you're don't know big who. It, tall, so was,
0: yeah, yeah, it must, was a little snug in areas. Yeah. I
1: and um, I did that successfully for about two and a half hours, and then a young boy grabbed my tail. So I peacefully turned around to him and said, excuse me, would you please not grab my tail? And the kid's head exploded because nobody told me the Red Robin doesn't talk. And so the kid was freaked out. He was running around the restaurant like, you know, he just seen a ghost. And so, so they um, relieved me of my Red Robin duties and put me on the floor where I was a waiter for two years and two days. (laughs) So
0: you managed to get fired from one job and rehired immediately at the same organization in less than two hours? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I I don't
1: know why I thought they were afraid I was going to, you know, react badly to being fired from the Red Robin when in real life I kind of felt like, okay, I'm not qualified to be the Red Robin, so I have to (laughs) evaluate everything. it became a good
0: mantra for your life, right? Yeah. (laughs) Since we've talked about this before, don't let me go back to the Red Robin, so.
1: I don't think, I mean, my Uncle Stanley, he told me under, you know, after we sold the company, he just said, "I just want you to know, like, of all the things you've accomplished and how amazing your life has been, and how proud I am. You did never did anything as well as you did being a waiter at the Red Robin." So <laughs> <laughs> he keeps you grounded.
2: That's such a beautiful person to yeah. have in your
0: life. Yeah, I right? love yeah. he's that. The best. I love that. That's fantastic. So he was are he friends with your dad? No. Is your dad alive? Yes. Because I know that after watching uh, 2020 the other night that he was a difficult man.
1: You know, I I think that oftentimes, especially the way it was written in print, I never intended my father to be a part of this story or Mm -hmm. my journey, you know, in that way. It actually wasn't me that started telling the stories about my dad. was people that they interviewed that started telling them because before Steve, my business partner and I had real shows, we would go to these networks during relation building years and not having anything to talk about with real work, I would tell stories about my dad. And it got to be such a big thing in town that before I would start a pitch, even years later when we were really successful, they'd say, Hey, before you start the pitch, can we bring a few people in from the office and can you tell stories about your dad?
2: (laughs) (laughs) What can you tell us one of the stories or a quickie you could tell us?
1: You know what, I think a lot of people think that based on what they've heard and certainly what they heard from my sister about my dad's sadistic qualities that people think that I was abused, you know, as a kid and I don't look at it like that at all, you know I, I was born Teflon to a lot of that, mm-hmm. and also my dad didn't really care about me, he only cared about my sister so he left me alone, and I got to witness all of it, so to me all of these stories were just fun and funny you know, I mean, I so could have
0: no lasting um, harm
1: No, not at all. You know, as a father, and you know, I don't think I take anything more seriously or think anything's more important than my role as my daughter's father. Like, that's everything to me and has been since the day she was born. You know, I do think that although my dad was a horribly disappointing father, that not everybody knows how to do it. Before I say anything about it, I just want, you know, people to know that the most important thing about being a parent is not just swinging like a pendulum back and forth about the things you do or didn't like about the way you were raised, but to break the chains sometimes that's a difficult thing to do, that generationally things are passed down and it takes a very brave person to break those chains and reset your family's ideas about what it is to be a parent, what it is to be in that family and, you know, how to benefit that. And my father's parents were terribly cruel to him. And so in a way, that's not a forgiveness for my father being so disappointing as a father, but he never figured it out that being a parent isn't really about you. My father seems to me to have very narcissistic tendencies. It's really just about how everything you do like affects him. So in a way, I think my father loved Being my father, he just did not like me at all. My mom fell in love with my dad's assistant, and they got married. They ran off together and got married.
0: And she left the family?
1: She did. She left the family.
0: And it's just you and your sister, right?
1: Yes. So we followed her to Philadelphia, which was a big change from being in State College and ultimately, it was not a change we could absorb. And so we moved back to State College knowing that it was a little more dangerous to be, you know, in that house with my dad as far as growing up than it was to be with my mom, who was incredibly loving and, you know, great. But she got mixed up, you know, and she left. And she made a decision about what was best for her and not what was best for us. Yeah. And that was, you know.
0: That's hard to imagine, right?
1: Right. That's hard to imagine, even though I know my mom was crazy love me, like crazy love me. But, you know, that was the decision she made. So we were kind of left in this, you know, situation where it was pretty difficult to navigate. So my father was a traveling clothing salesman in in the sporting goods world. So every summer at the beginning of the year, right after school, we would get t-shirts and jerseys for softball that my dad would have made. And they would all have our nicknames on the back (laughs) of them. And my dad would give everybody their nicknames. And so every year it was like a reveal ceremony where we would get the shirts and we'd see what our nickname was. And my nickname was Iggy, which was short for Ignoramus, which I just figured out. So I have to give him that one because I really didn't know. I really didn't know <laughs> what I meant. When
0: well, you say just figured that out, yeah, I just figured out. That? Wow.
1: When we left home, my father had a book. We call it the Gray Book. And it was a, a spiral notebook and it had detailed information on every penny dollar that my father ever spent on us from the time we came back when I was 11 till the time that we turned 18. And the only things that were excluded for that were food and housing, but tickets to Hershey Park and like my Little League uniform, everything was in there. And he would tally it all up and then he would give it to you as a bill and he would say, you need to pay me back for, you know, all these expenses of your childhood. Oh
0: my God.
1: And so and it came with a payment plan And also the knowledge that if you missed any of your payments, that you would be uh, 10% irrevocably removed from the will. I had a calendar underneath my desk, and every day from the time I think I was 12 or 13 maybe, I would go underneath and cross them out, and the calendar was made until the day I could leave home. Mm -hmm. So I was just in this massive childhood countdown until the time I could Mm -hmm. escape, and so in a way... You hold your breath, you try to survive, you know, a situation like that. But you can't just survive it and then carry it with you for your whole life. Mm -hmm. You have to, you know, if you do get out of a situation that's difficult, you need to reset. Like I said before, you know, it's not a blame situation. I don't think he really enjoyed being a father. And I don't think he recognized, you know, what the role a father plays because he didn't have a good one. You know, it just wasn't for him. Right. It just wasn't for him. And that's the way I reconcile it all. I mean, the stories to me are hilarious. My father did some of the truly amazing things that a person can do. And to me, they were super funny. But if you spoke to my sister, she sees it in a completely different light. And they were debilitating, crippling, destructive. You know, it's just they were the same things, just viewed from a different point of view. To me, perspective has always been something that I feel comfortable with. And again, it's not because, you know, I was touched with it. It was because I had incredible people in my life. I had fantastic coaches and I had, you know, a town that believed in a, you know, although a lot of terrible things have happened there since. I had a town that believed in a certain ethical behavior, a certain way in which you live. You know, I've told this before, but I was in college when the space shuttle crashed and it left a very I watched it live. I happened to be sitting there and they went too. to a commercial and then I kind of had this bad feeling. And I was just sitting there on an ottoman and, you know, it was already over with. I thought, oh, they already launched I- You know, probably should go to class, but I didn't want to go to class anyway, so I sat there and then all of a sudden they came back on the air and this whole thing went down and you know, after that date for a very long time I did seven extra everything for the seven astronauts who died. Right. Mm -hmm. And so when I'm in the gym and I'm, you know, having to do seven extra push ups for the astronauts that died, well, you find power and strength to do seven more than you think you could have on your own because you're not doing them for yourself. You're doing them for somebody else, to honor somebody else. And so That has been an effective way in which I get a lot of the benefits personally of living a certain kind of life, but I don't do it for myself. And I certainly would not have. That was
0: an unbelievable thing to see.
1: Yeah, I certainly would not have survived this, you know, illness or anything if I had done it for myself, you know.
0: So let's go back to. You came out here, you got a job at the Red Robin. Yes, I did. I was, I was <laughs> and they Jen took winner. you off the Red Robin right immediately upon res- arrival yeah. and put you inside. And now you're 18, 19 years old, 20 years 20. old. You're 20 mm-hmm. years old. And now somehow along the way there, you found somebody that you loved and married, had a baby with. Oh, and that then, was
1: many moons later.
0: But you had, what caused you, because based upon everything you've said, and particularly where you grew up in the country, there was no history of the entertainment business. No, And so talk about that, that career trajectory.
1: Well, it was actually a little bit before that. When I was at Shippensburg, they used to have, you know, these sort of competitions. They were Star search S competitions where they would feed into bigger competitions. And eventually they could lead to being on Star Search. They were like the minor leagues. And they came to Shippensburg and they had... Um, a competition where you could win a hundred dollars if you won your category and I didn't have a hundred dollars so to me that was like a I would love that you know <laughs> so my roommate from college David he said you know why don't you go up there and do stand-up comedy so
0: I oh here, yeah do that it's chippensburg I mean honestly right. there
1: were four or five cows in the audience like it was not <laughs> it wasn't the most difficult thing so but I went up there but then I found out right beforehand that they didn't have enough competitors there wasn't any Anybody else in stand up comedy, so they were combining categories. So I was competing for $200 against Debbie, the dancing housewife from Newburgh. She was in the (laughs) dancing category. So I came out, I really didn't have anything to say. I told a couple of inappropriate stories about my sister, a couple of, you know, just whatever I made up. People laughed. Yeah, people <laughs> laughed, and then Debbie, you know, came out. The dance did not go well. It did not go well at all. So I ended up winning. And now
0: you hit $200 had two hundred dollars. I had two hundred dollars, and
1: better than that, I got to keep going. So I won six. Local to regional star search competitions, doing stand-up comedy. I did, you know, ra- radio things. How the- <laughs> did
2: you start writing material after the first time, or did you? I just don't know if I wrote
1: material. Time? I just thought of like okay. certain topics. It's kind of how You're I do prepared my prepared a little bit. I kind of do my speaking engagements now that way. I I know that there are certain things I want to hit along the way, mm-hmm. certain points of interest that I'm going to hit. But what I do in between them, I don't really know. I just mm-hmm. talk to them. So I won a few times, and I started to win a little bit of money more than you know in the first one. And I did this radio interview. And then somebody heard me from like a local venue, and they said, Would you come open up for this country band at the largest moose lodge in the country? And. <laughs> <laughs> So, I did, and I said some inappropriate things there. The and moose I remember, lodge. yeah, I remember getting booed out of the moose lodge, and my roommate and I were running through the parking lot. I remember because it was a gravel parking lot, and gravel was flying anywhere because I literally thought, hey, we're going to kill me. So, <laughs> oh, yeah, we're yes. sprinting out of the place, and we're like, get in the car, you know. Um, so, that was a. Uh, So I thought to myself, well, maybe, you know, this isn't great. But I said, once you've told people that you're going to move to California, and especially because I had an influencer in my life who said she was from California and she said, you're not going to be okay here. You need to go out somewhere where they have the best brains in the world and go hone yourself into something you know a little sharper than what you can do here and then come home but i forgot to go home so i did i came out here and then i started thinking about stand-up comedy but then i couldn't because i couldn't even do a moose lodge so i I can't i'm watching the people here and going to clubs and they're so great even the terrible ones are so great yeah and it's a whole other class so then i you know I got a commercial agent, and I started fiddling around with the idea of being a quote-unquote actor. And I went on game shows, like I went on Match Game and Card Sharks, and I was just having fun trying to figure out what my value was here. I was the worst Literally, I'm not kidding because I do this for a living now, so I know. I was the worst (laughs) actor that has ever stepped foot anywhere near Hollywood. I mean, I can't even imagine what was going on in those casting rooms after I would leave. The hysteria (laughs) must have been crazy. (laughs) I was up for a United States Post Office commercial, and I was supposed to be the letter or the high school letterman who was getting his acceptance letter from college. And so I had a, a mom that was my partner. So she's there, and I see her, and I like to me, she's kind of famous, like, she's the most famous person that I've since seen, so she, we were at callbacks and we're standing next to each other and there's a T, she's standing to the right, I'm standing to the left and we're going through the scenario where I get the letter and I hand it to her and I read it and I say, oh, you know, I got in and she starts crying and I couldn't figure, I thought I did something wrong and I upset her, so I said, <laughs> I'm so sorry, like, did I say something, that I, did I come in at the wrong time or did I say something I'm not supposed to? She goes, it's called fucking acting. <laughs> <laughs> So I'm like, oh, <laughs> so, so, you know, I'm obviously, I'm, I'm horrified, you know, she's here, she's like this sweet woman from whatever town's on that show, and she's so sweet, and she just yelled at me and swore at me, so um, she told them to get me okay. out of there. Get rid of so, this guy, yeah. yeah. get me out, yeah. so I was gone from that, and then... Um, I met one of my regular customers at the Red Robin. And and so this one gentleman said, you know, I'd like you to go get your real estate license. And then I want you to come and work for me. So I did. I thought that would be cool that I could be an actor slash real estate agent instead of an actor slash waiter. Turned out I was really more a waiter slash real estate agent. And the acting thing really wasn't going great for me. And I took all of my tests and I passed them. And he said, I don't have a job for you. And I'm like, well, why did you say that in the first place? But I had my real estate license, so I got a job at this place called the Haynes Company, which doesn't exist anymore, but it was a, I was a cold caller for one of the most intense, unpleasant, in-your-face people I've ever known in my life who I'm so grateful to because I was forged in fire just like a lot of people. I was forged in a pretty heavy fire. Like I, I had a desk area and I had you know, pictures on or whatever I had on there and he came in with a big box like my first day and he took all my stuff and he shoved it into a box and he goes, here's a crisscross directory which is a directory of people who own real estate, a mirror so that you smile when you're talking and a telephone, that's it. You don't need anything else around. You don't need to talk to anybody. You don't need to go to lunch. You don't need anything. Except for get me three appointments every day or don't come back tomorrow. And that was, you know, and I was making like $246 every two weeks doing this job. So, you know, I was really good at it because I really don't take things personally. And I didn't know if I was or not, but, you know... Like we would do these sessions where all the top people in the country and the company were making so much money. They would meet with all those low people and we would role play certain objections that you're going to hear on the phone. So one day I hear this objection in my role playing. I picked it out of a glass bowl and it said, why should I trust you with my real estate investments? And so we went around. Everybody, you know, tried to come up with answers. And finally, this one guy who's the king, he says, all you do is you tell him, sir, ma'am. I make hundreds of thousands of dollars a year helping people just like you with your real estate investments. And that was the answer we were supposed to give. So sure enough, I go back to my desk and like the fourth phone call, this guy, I said, are you the owner of, you know, 46 units in La Canada? He goes, it's La Kenyatta. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So anyway, we got off to a bad start. (laughs) So, I, you know, I was new here. I don't know. It looks right. like wild Canada to me. So he says to me, Why should I trust you with my real estate investments? I'm like, Oh my God, I, I, ju- I have this one. Like, I just had it. So I said to him as earnestly as I could, I, I was so uh, feeling it. I said, Sir, I make hundreds of dollars a year helping people just like you with your real estate investments. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> oh my God. It didn't go great. So. Um, he hung up on me, but <sighs> I was towards the end of that day, and I only and it was had... was the truth. <laughs> yeah, it was the truth. <laughs> and I'm towards the end of that day, and I don't have three appointments. So I'm, I have to go to the Red Robin, like, right now. I'm getting dressed while I'm cold calling, putting on my silly bow tie and apron. Like, I have to leave right now to be at work on time. So I get this woman on the phone, and i talked to her and she says i'm not interested you know she was very nice but very firm she's like please don't call here ever again like i said listen i'm so sorry but if i don't get three appointments every day i can't come back to this job tomorrow you can totally cancel it before i come there or before anything happens but can i just put you down on the books as being an appointment and she was sweet she said yeah you can you're not going to come here but i said i understand So I put it on the books. I go to work and everything. Well, that day comes and she never canceled. So I show up to my boss's house to pick him up. He's not ready. He's not ready. Like there's a lot going on. He's not ready. But I'm not going to (laughs) cancel. You know, like I actually have a chance. So. I take my briefcase which I had all of our properties in and I'm in a suit and I have like a 45-inch neck cuz I had just got, you know, out of college and my right. I was wrestling and you know I have this wool suit on and I'm like, you know, <laughs> Sweating and walking (laughs) through the city like Godzilla (laughs) trying to find things. So I remember she was at 9000 Sunset and I went in. She uh, was in a doctor's office and I went in and I met with her. Right down the street? Yeah. um, She turned out to be the wife of an extraordinarily successful orthopedic surgeon. And she wasn't a a nurse or secretary. She was his wife and she handled all the real estate investments. So we're sitting in her office and so forth. And I'm just sitting there staring at her because I've never been on an appointment on my own. I really don't know what we're going to talk about. And she says, well, did you bring any... You know, properties for me to look at. And I said, yeah. So I I get my briefcase out and I I don't know the combination. I have no idea (laughs) what the combination is to my briefcase and it's locked. So, you know, she and I here, the sweet woman, we're, we're in her office and we're taking like a letter opener and we're trying to get into my briefcase. So we finally bust <laughs> the thing open, never to be used again because we destroyed the whole thing. And um, all the properties were in there. So she started looking through them and she said, you know, I want you to take me to 11136 Hespi Street. And she said, at first I'm going to take you to lunch and I'm going to teach you how to do this. I said, okay. So we go wow. to lunch. Wow. She goes over. She writes a full a full price offer on 11136 Hespi Street. It was $6.2 million. And wow. And she takes me to another property on Riverside Drive. And she says, I own this building. I don't want to sell it. I'm going to give you the listing for it. So this woman is just like amazing. So I don't want to leave her. Like she's trying to leave. I'm like holding onto her ankle, you know, on the ground. Like, Please don't leave me. <laughs> she's kicking <laughs> yeah, you up yeah. like this.
2: Yeah. 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 Please, why can't I?
1: Yeah. So I go back to the office with my tail wagging. Like I'm so excited. Like I got this full price offer on this thing. And I got another listing and, you know, everybody was celebrating. It was just this crazy exciting time that sort of showed me that, you know, Having that kind of success is just, it's great. It's almost like being part of a team like I was in high school. It's like there was a lot of celebration going on, except for my boss, who said, you shouldn't have gone to that meeting. It's not your place to do those things. And I'm going to give you $12,000 when this closes and you're not even worth that. But you know, I'm like, twelve thousand dollars? Hells yeah. So you know, he made hundreds and hundreds of thousands right. of dollars, but I didn't know anything about it. So I call my mom and I'm like, you know, I'm thinking about retiring. Um, you know <laughs> that's fine. I, I got I, twelve thousand dollars. Twelve thousand dollars, I feel pretty good, you know. That's that's like, you know, six months, the Red Robin, so I'm I'm pretty much done at this point. I'm just gonna you know, so <laughs> <laughs> anyway he was it was difficult, so I quit one day after my year of commitment i I worked there for a year and a day, but he really, really taught me how to be fearless on the phone and not to take things personally and
2: a year and a day, what did you do next?
1: I went into another real estate business as a partner, but mm-hmm. it was a business where i didn 't make any money, so I totally sacrificed the two hundred and eighty whatever dollars I made every two weeks, and I went off on my own and I really gave it a shot. I quit the Red Robin, which was the hardest job I've ever (laughs) left because I knew anytime I needed money, I could go there and give people food and they would give me money. And so it really was hard. It was difficult because I lost all my security. If you're going to have a career, it's hard to have a job too. So I decided I would have a career. In the interim, the head coach at Calabasas High School wrestling team was in a motorcycle accident and – one of my regulars that was involved with that school knew that I was a wrestler. So they asked me to take over the program, which I won't bore everybody with. But it is one of the most amazing stories of my life. And um, they paid me $1,000 for the whole year. So I was like, this isn't really the career I was looking for. <laughs> so I tried to take a few interviews. I was offered a job at CAA in the mailroom. And I interviewed for them. And as I was you know, leaving that meeting, I said to the gentleman who had hired me, how do I – distinguish myself as being somebody of value in the mail. Do I put the mail on the desk in a certain angle or is is there some sort of origami involved or what exactly, you know, do I do? And he said, you're going to be jumped over by everybody who has somebody who knows somebody who knows somebody. There are people with doctorates and law degrees and, you know, so basically maybe someday in the future, Somebody will just get exhausted by seeing you, and they'll try you out on a desk, but that's it. So I turned around and hand back my paperwork, and I said, you know, this just isn't for me. It didn't feel right. It didn't feel good to me, and I don't even know why I made that decision at the time because it seemed like the best opportunity in the world, but there was something discouraging about not having control of your own destiny in a way, and I didn't feel like I would have it there. So
0: You made the right call.
1: I think so, too. Now I'm doing what I do. I know that. That's true. But I went bowling with Kirk Cameron and a friend through a friend of mine we all went bowling I, he's an amazing guy and he's a very giving soul and they invited me and my mom who was out visiting to easter it was like you know have a jew to easter thing <laughs> so they they invited- Bring your
0: Jew to easter today yeah, right
1: so we were like the you know honorary jews and we went over to his parents house barbara and robert and i got to be very close friends with them and barbara had a talent agency for kids because both kirk and candace her daughter out of the four of them they were both on hit shows so all the moms in the world would think that barbara could turn their kids into stars barbara said to me you know i know that you're good at cold calling and i need people to help get my clients appointments is there any way that you would consider coming to work for me so i said no because they were really close friends of mine i said i don't want anything to affect our friendship and she said I kind of remember this. I don't think she meant it this way, but she said, well, you know, it's more likely to affect our friendship in a negative way if you don't come to work for me.
2: Wow. (laughs) So it was something in that, you know,
1: so I did, I, I went to work with her for a little while and then we became more like partners and we built a, a successful agency. And Barbara, long after I was gone, Barbara ran the agency. And, you know, until she just wanted to do more charitable things. And and decided, now today, are you friends with her? Son? Oh, my gosh, yes. Well, the whole family adopted me. So I basically was there every day. And I did my laundry there. And I <laughs> ate meals there. And we talked about the philosophy of life. And Barbara and Robert were such an integral part of that period of my life that I would never have been able to accomplish the things i did even though they're well past what anybody ever would have thought but barbara and robert were really the ones that rubbed the sticks together in the first place so one day i get this call from this gentleman from warner brothers who represented the shows and syndication and candace was on full house and he said hey could you get candace to go to san antonio to this kids fair for one of the stations so I said, sure. So Barbara and Candace and I got on a plane and we went there. I, we opened the door to this place and there were like 10,000 kids wow. waiting for Candace. Wow. And, you know, my brain exploded. Yeah. So I said, you know, when we were on our way home. I said, I I have an idea. So I got uh, the list. I called the guy who sent me there. I said, hey, could you send me the list of all the stations who have full house and syndication? And he sent it to me and I spent two days and I called everybody from New York City to Hawaii. And I said, you know, this is who we are. And we'd like to do appearances, you know, in your town to benefit the syndication. And if you can put it together, let me know. And so I told one of my friends about that. And he said, you know, you should probably get a real job soon because the Cameron Gravy Train isn't going to run forever. So I named my company Gravy Train Productions. And I... (laughs)
2: Love that.
1: So on my... Yeah? On my my desk, I had a a glass cake... Pan, mm-hmm. you know, whatever they call it. Cl- yeah. You know, like cake stand, Yeah, like, yeah. With so lid over. It. It was, yeah, with a yeah. lid over. It. So I got a phone that hooted like a train when it would ring and smoke would come out of it. And I put it on my, de- almost as a joke. It was almost like, you know, the bat phone. And I had made all these calls. Well, I, nothing happened for six months. Like, nothing happened. And I'm standing over having a conversation with Barbara about something. And I look over and my cake thing is filling up with smoke. <laughs> And I was like, "Hey you know, <laughs> My so I up, yeah, I run over there, and it's a uh, somebody from w l v i in Boston, and he said, You know." we got your call. We da, 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 we'd like Candace to come here. And, you know, this meet and greet, you know, we do some promos. We'll have a mall thing. I said, great. I said, do you mind if we bring, you know, pictures and posters, you know, to benefit Starlight Foundation, which was Cameron's charity of choice. And they said, no problem. So we brought pictures and posters to Boston and Candace signed as many of them as she could. And, The place was just crazy packed. It was almost scary. It was so packed. And all of a sudden, I just saw the whole thing lay out in front of me. So long story short... I ended up doing this for 25 of the top kids in the business and I I didn't travel with everybody but we had a system and it was phenomenal and I had Anvil the case company make special cases for our posters and you know we would take them out there and we were just having the best time and we were everybody was winning all over the place
0: and you were and making money
1: making money and Barbara was Candace you know or Any of the other people that I represented, like they couldn't sign at the speed of light, you know, so they only got to so many people. But, you know, with Candace and Barbara, Barbara was a star, too. She was the bomb of, you know, so we'd open up a second table and Barbara's table would be packed. You know, it was just it was so much fun and it was madness. It was just craziness. But it also became a really valuable part that was a blind spot to agencies at the time. Like the agents didn't get involved with this stuff. And so it was a win win for everybody. Right.
2: Another example of you seizing an opportunity. Just creativity, I mean too, because you found a gap and you said, yeah, this this makes sense and then you executed on it in a way that was for the greater good. It was
1: I think what you guys are missing about this, because you're all looking at it in such a positive way, is nobody would ever really hire me to do anything. Right, so I had to find blind spots and vacancies, and
0: I want to talk about this. I just want to know how did the Cameron story end, and then how did the Steve story begin? Yeah, Yeah, so
1: so Gravy Train becomes you know this really big thing. Like I've got three, four kids traveling every weekend. Like it's just on fire, and I'm doing huge corporate events. Like I did 29 corporate events where I took one of the kids from Full House and married them to the Tricks Bunny. And we did, you know, all these appearances for box tops for education and, you know, we were doing these things. But I was really, really generating revenue doing this. It was a cool blind spot. But my kids were getting older. And by the way, I stayed with Barbara even though I couldn't really work in the agency anymore because it was a conflict. I stayed there. I had my rented, quote unquote, space there so I could be near her in case she needed anything in case there was any questions about anything or if I could be helpful in any way because you know as I would today if she called me right now I'd get up and leave and go Mm -hmm. you know help if I could so I really have always recognized you know and appreciated what they have been for me in my life so I stayed there for a really long time and Barbara was doing amazing on her own she's a you know a force of nature that um, is very unique and she found um, we had an intern named Chellene who is now she runs an organization called SkipOne.org dot org where it's a charity where if you just like give up one manicure a month or whatever and you mm-hmm. take that money and yeah. you donate it she's she and Barbara together are just making a difference in so many people's lives which I think is much more consistent with Barbara's wants as a human mm-hmm. than you know being a talent agency. Mm-hmm. you know so Gravy Train got big I got approached by. This name a uh, guy named Robert Landis, who used to be the chief marketing officer of LA Gear, which was a big deal at the time. I remember them, and um, he said he was starting a web company called Celebrity Sightings, which now, if people go to it, I think is a porn site, but at the time it was not. So, <laughs> oh my
2: God.
1: yeah, I think when we got rid of the URL, somebody grabbed it and it's now a porn site. So, <laughs> forgive me, but he said, You know, we're doing this, and the whole idea of it is it'll be a proprietary website for teenage celebrities an online version of Tiger Beat if you will or something like that and I need you because I need your kids and so I went and saw his space and met everybody and I thought you know this is legit like this is this was 1996 so it was pretty forward thinking you know and this was before, obviously, Twitter or anything like that. So right. the ki- they didn't really have access to the celebrities. And- 20
0: years ago, 21 years ago. Wow. Yeah. That is legit. That is really forward thinking.
1: Yeah, he was legit. I mean, yeah. he, he's a very, very smart guy. And anyway, so he started the company. I came into the company. I spoke with each one of you know my kids who wanted to be a part of it. Most of them did. And they were owners in it on a profit participation basis based on the pro rata share of visitations that they got to their particular rooms in the site, which I thought was cool. So instead of signing a napkin for somebody, you could, you know, have a a card with your celebrity sightings URL on it, and you could sign that for them, and then they could go and interact with them. So it turned out to be this incredible thing. And Robert did an amazing job with it. I was not integral to the day-to-day running of it at all. I just was really helping liaison and trying to Uh, make sure that my kids were safe and, you know, everything was going well. So it got to be a thing and we did a lot of big events and, you know, it it was really quite a successful thing. We had an offer, I think in 1998 for tens of millions of dollars, which we said no to because it was all on the rise. So it, it went really well. We ended up selling it the next year for a lot less than that because the crash had happened. But while we were there, we were angel financed. And so we didn't have money to just market it. And that's really what you needed. So I started thinking to myself, well, where are the places where we have the same audience, the same demographics, you know, that currently exist in the media. So I went and made a deal with Sterling McFadden, which had Tiger Beat and Team Beat and all of them. And I said, we'll give you right now pictures of, you know, these kids doing family stuff or going to amusement. Like, you'll never be able to get these on your own. Like, we're going to give you exclusive material. And in return, I need two pages in every single magazine you have promoting Mm -hmm. our site and for some reason even though those kinds of sites ended up destroying traditional magazine sales in a big way we all agreed to it and so they started promoting our site and sites started growing we started really having a lot of success and then i thought oh that works So what now so i went and i sold a tv show idea that i created called adventure club that was like a saturday morning educational thing with all of my kids because they were allowed to do other things that just weren't competing with their shows So I went, we never did it or anything like that, but I sold it to Paramount and I was like, oh my gosh, I left that room and I was like, wait a minute, you can say your ideas out loud and people are going to buy them and pay for it (laughs) and something's going to happen. And my dad was the greatest clothing salesman I ever saw in my life. And I watched it my whole childhood. He'd like hold up a shirt and he'd go, this comes in camel 289 and <laughs> navy blue 489. And you can't, you know, I was like, and I mean, everybody's, they were so excited. I'm like, there's nothing exciting about camel or blue, but my dad was just great at it. And his father was a salesman. And so I thought, oh, I can sell these TV shows. So after we sold celebrity sightings, I thought of something and I sold it to Merv Griffin it was a game show idea. My friend, Bob Cosberg, he uh, worked for Merv Griffin. And so I said, can we pitch this? And we pitched it. And I sold it to Merv and I became a consultant at the Merv Griffin Company, which was an epic experience. Oh, that
0: show called Wheel of Fortune? No, I wish. <laughs> no.
1: Merv was a very generous, amazing human being who was really, really respectful and kind to me personally i can't speak to all of his Mm -hmm. lives but to me he was he was great so one day i had gone on vacation and i came home and a lot of the people that were in the entertainment part of the company had left or were gone for some reason and i got the opportunity because Merv, i think believed in me at the time to go sit in this gigantic office at the beverly hilton and pretend like i was good at this and you know started selling tv shows So I did. And that's why I learned to do it. And I sold a couple of shows with Merv, but we didn't really. You were,
2: what, 30 then? Yeah. That Merv is such an amazing businessman.
1: Anybody who had an opportunity to really, really have a one-on-one conversation with Merv, I mean, it was worthwhile in ways I don't say about very many other people that I've met. He was, you know, he was just so incredibly accomplished. And I had this, like, one time that I was with him. And I have a lot of personality also. So we were sitting in this big meeting and all this stuff was going down and everybody was having a great time and laughing and everything. And we walked out of the room and Merv pulled me aside in the hallway and he said, I just want you to know... There's only one star in this company, and it's not you. <laughs> Which was Another true. life lesson, right? Which is true. Yeah, it was a great life lesson, and it was true. He was such a it's huge star. not about star. you. This is,
0: yeah, it's it's thematically the same. Yeah,
1: it's like, well, don't mm-hmm. try to be funny in a meeting. Just do your job. Like, mm-hmm. I got this. I'll take right. us wherever we need to go, mm-hmm. and you don't need to. And I so appreciated the comment. I so You know, respected the comment. And he was funny the way he delivered everything. So you could laugh about it, but then you'd leave, and all of a sudden it would sink in what he said, and you were like, oh, yeah.
0: Yeah, I I get that. yeah." Yeah.
1: You know, it was just amazing. Just even though I only got to spend a year or so there, I got a lot out of it. And, you know, I had sold a couple of shows, but they never went anywhere because. You know, the networks are wanting to control everything and Merv was a genius and that just didn't come together that great. So I ended up, you know, leaving there and I got a deal at MTV as an independent producer. And a friend of mine came to me with a show about hypnotism and... I don't believe in hypnotism. And so I said, you know, I don't really believe in hypnotism. And he said, I said, is there any way to prove whether somebody's hypnotized or not? And they said, well, we have this portable EEG machine and you wear it around your head and it shows up on a computer, shows your brainwaves and stuff so you can tell. I'm like, that is awesome for TV. Like, <laughs> yeah, be so fun. right. So we came up with... A- <laughs> We came up with a show that never saw the light of day, but it taught me a lot, which was called Tranced. And I took the little red light out of the camera. I was doing auditions and I would leave the room every time I'd say, oh, I have to excuse me for one second. And the person, they'd be humped over like they were hypnotized. And then as soon as the door would close, they'd open one eye and they'd look around, you know. And I was like, nobody's hypnotized, right? So we came up with this show where we would have them do terrible, awful things until the point where they just gave up and said, I'm not hypnotized. I'm not doing that. (laughs) So we would just continue to up the ante way before it's time. I think it would be a big hit now.
0: I want to get to when you got married and had your baby. Yes. And I want to get to you and Steve because you
1: and Steve are. Let's move along. Okay. So my mom died in I wanna say in like nineteen ninety nine. It was oh, a horrible that was a year. Bad year. No, it was a horrible year. I was I was as low as a human being could be. And I had this huge vacuum in my life. Like I was being successful, but I had nobody to share it with now. So I was doing an event for Celebrity Sightings. And there was a publicist named Hope Diamond. And she had a big event Hope for us. Hope Diamond? Hope Diamond, yeah.
2: Like not the Hope Diamond, <laughs> yeah, but no. Hope Diamond. Well, she considers
1: herself the Hope Diamond. i <laughs> That's did sure tri- she does. She's That's a great the person. the greatest yeah. name ever. Yeah. Um, so Hope Diamond introduced me to my first wife. And we had my daughter and, you know, it was an amazing time and we didn't make it, you know, through the marriage. She's literally like one of the greatest human beings I've met. She's, you know, everybody who knows her knows that, you know, she's thinks of her as being like the most amazing human being they've ever met. It was different for us being married. It didn't go particularly well for either of us. And so I think we ended up getting a divorce around the time when uh, Ariana was two years old. Hmm. And so that's been quite a long time ago now.
0: She had the fantastic gift of your daughter. Yeah,
1: I mean, I didn't know she was as much fun as she was going to turn out to be then. I saw something in her that I could relate to, which was she, in a lot of ways, was just like me. She didn't like being told what to do. She had her own ideas about things. Even before she had original thoughts, she still had her own ideas about things. And so I decided at a pretty young age with her that, I would treat her exactly the way I would have wanted to be treated as so a kid. So the
0: co-parenting between you and your ex was fine.
1: Amazing. It always has been, you know. It's great. Yeah, always has been. We are unified in the one thing that's important, which is we want our daughter to be well-rounded, happy, successful, loving, giving, kind. She is all of those things, and you don't have to take my word for it. I mean, she's she's a masterpiece of a kid and I just couldn't be any more fortunate to be her dad. And a lot of that had to do with, you know, some incredible mothering that went on. And uh, Did
0: you live geographically near each other?
1: Always. I kind of tied a string between us. So every time I would get more ahead and I would move, I would move them, you know. So they weren't really more than three miles from me at any time that I can remember. Mm-hmm. And we always stayed close. I mean, for a long time, I was still the spider killer and stuff. Not that I would kill them, but, you know, I would remove them. And then, you know, people, some people know this, but... You know, when Ariana hit first grade, she was starting to become extraordinarily emotional, you know, and she would always give up on everything. And um, it was really the first time where I had to really put my mind to this girl that I love so much, but I didn't quite understand. Like, I I don't ever remember being that young or I wasn't really a child. She was
0: six, right?
1: Yeah, something like that. So I sat her down because she came in. (laughs) She came into my room and she had been doing something in her room and she came in and she put her the back of her hand on her forehead and she said, I can't take it anymore. And she flopped down on the bed <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, um, so we have a
0: child actor. Yeah, here. I'm, like,
1: I'm like, that, that doesn't sound like we're off to a, you know, to a, in, a, in a great place. So I went to a friend of mine who's a pediatrician and I said, can I borrow your stethoscope, you know, for the night? And so I got it, and Ariana came over, and we sat at the end of my bed on the floor, and I looked at her dead in the eye, and I said, "Honey, I think it's old. You know, you're old enough to know." And she said, "Know what?" And I said, "Well, I'm going to tell you something, and you know, I just want you to understand. Like this is our thing." She said, "Okay." So I take the stethoscope and I put it in her ears, and I take it and I put it on my heart, and while she's listening to my heart, she can hear me as well, and I said. I was born with the heart of a champion and I never give up, ever. She said, Okay. And so I took the stethoscope and I put it on her heart, which of course sounds like everybody's heart. And she said to me with the most beautiful moment of my life, with these big, beautiful <laughs> eyes, she said, I have the heart of a champion, Daddy. And I said, Yeah, you do. And I said, You know, that's, you know, now. And she said, I do. And she stood up like, like she was, you know, Wonder oh Woman. God. She stood up just filled with this, you know, Inner power that just came to her in a moment, which sounds like a really amazing thing until you get called to the principal's office, you know, the next day. (laughs) (laughs) And I go in and I said, you know, what's going on? He goes, you know, I don't actually even know how I've never come across this before. I don't even know what to say. <laughs> your daughter has been walking around all day telling people she has the heart of a champion and they don't. <laughs> so, oh, so I forgot I forgot that to like yeah, close that part off. And I think your nope. obligation, you know, per our conversation earlier about my childhood was I'm not gonna bring those things to my life and my family and you know when i got sick i was in a wheelchair like my hands and feet were all black i had no hair i was slumped over and i really was trying to figure out what effect this had on ariana because you know again not it, it wasn't really about me at that point like i didn't want this to affect her life i wanted her to have a normal life and go back to being herself like you know i'm gonna be fine so i just couldn't quite spin the dials because it was so dramatic so
0: well this was a big deal this wasn't you know the flu this right it was a
1: big deal. deal and you know as part of that whole story about heart of champion and all that stuff you know when she came to the hospital to see me she was 15 and um I'm hearing this third party, but I know it's true. Then she walked into my hospital room and she saw a father that was fairly close to death and her head just exploded. She walked out in the hallway. She fell down on the ground. She cried for five minutes and then she stood up and she wiped her tears away and she said, let's do this. You know, Jennifer and Ariana have been the rocks in my life, and Ariana is, she's just a stone-cold killer when it comes to people who need her. She is as solid a human being as there is, and she unfortunately had to be that for me which was not something I really wanted, and it was something no, of I regretted, but I know that she doesn't regret That's just it. just
0: the way that worked out, though. That's what all happened, right. and there she was.
1: And so, you know, the end of that all is is that she's playing Division One college water polo now, and her team makes these awards that are paper plates where they design them specifically for something, you know, about that player, so it's not just Defensive Player of the Year. It's, not, it's about them. And I'm, you know, totally passively standing in the back watching this whole thing, and the girls on her team hold up a plate that has a phoenix on it and she wins the fiery phoenix award Yeah, they're describing it these girls who have nothing know nothing about the things i've ever told ariana we've shared together right and they said you know there's never been a person in any of our lives who can get knocked down can get destroyed disintegrated and rise up 10 times stronger Mm -hmm.
0: Wow, that's amazing So
1: I think all those Love things that. have a through line you know, that,
0: They do, everything yeah. does I yeah. mean, if you look back, if you look like that everything does, you know, if you look top down Okay, now let's talk about Steve
1: It was right about that time, actually, you know I had left Murph Griffin, the MTV <laughs> thing wasn't really working out that great for me but I was selling shows, but they weren't getting made, because every time that I would sell a show they would give me a different showrunner you know, the executive producer who was actually going to execute on the show, and I just it never happened, and so I thought to myself, continuity, continuity, continuity. I need to have a home, you know, but I wasn't actively searching for it. But I came up with this cockamamie idea that Mike Tyson, who was still Mike Tyson, even though he had lost a couple of times, he was still the biggest draw in sports. Oh,
0: he's unbelievable.
1: And I came up with this idea that Mike should fight in the UFC. He should fight in the octagon. You know, I saw the poster with Mike and his gloves laying on the floor and just how terrifying that would be you Mm -hmm. know for somebody else because the UFC then was more you know street fighters and you know not right they they had a lot of champions but there was also tank abbots and people who were just tough guys so I thought man you know Mike would just be so great so I went and got this big offer backed by somebody for like 17 million dollars and I was talking to one of my friends Dan Harrison who um, is a scheduler at Fox now and I said, you know, and this is what my idea was. We were just talking. He goes, you should go see my friend, Steve Michaels. He just spent six months with Mike doing a documentary. So Mm -hmm. I go over to the Fox building. I walk in and Steve's got an office that's already, he's like 12 years old. And he's got an office that's the size of a football field. he He knocked out half of the offices and he created this gigantic office. So I walk in and his desk is like, I don't know, 20 feet deep, you know, so you're so far away. And he looks at me and he goes... So what's your story, fuckface?
2: Oh my god. Seriously. So I really the yeah, first Yeah. So I think to myself
1: Oh, that's so I don't fun. know whether I should kill him or partner with him for the rest of my life. <laughs> so I decided to partner with him for the rest of my life because there's just something so incredibly charming something about him. Something so endearing yeah, about him. He's such a good hearted person with this, this crazy, you know, fire suit that he wears on the outside. And I'm the opposite of that. Like I'm not that way at all. But in a way that's. Great, because we had opposite skill sets, opposite personalities, but unified interests. And for the entire time that I've been with Steve, which is now 15 some odd years, we've never had a fight. We just don't fight. The the,
0: the, uh, symmetry between you two is fascinating to watch. Uh, The funniest
1: thing was I leave Steve's office and I'm thinking to myself, I don't know, there's something about that guy. And I was working from my house at that time because I had left MTV and I was still trying to figure out. And I, I said, I don't know, there's like... Something really about that guy, but I I hadn't really figured out the path yet. So I am on my way to some sort of an event with a buddy of mine, and I get this call from Steve, and he says, Mike Tyson wants to have dinner with you tonight. And I said, well, you know, I I can't. I'm on my way to this event with my buddy. Maybe we can do it. He goes, I don't think you heard me, motherfucker. (laughs) Mike wants to have dinner with you Tonight. <laughs> so I drop off my buddy. I'm like, dude, you're on your own. Here's a ticket. tickets. go find a girl somewhere. And, you know, and I drive to have dinner with Steve and Mike Tyson and Mike's team. And Mike says he's not interested in fighting in mixed martial arts. And um, so I'm like, well, OK, well, I don't know why I'm here, but this was fun. And he said, I'm interested in doing something else, you know, a boxing situation. And I'm like, one of my closest friends in the world, Jeff Reed was the, he managed Riddick Bow's whole career. Like he financed the whole career and he was very big into boxing. So I go into the bathroom and I'm on my cell phone, I'm in a stall, I'm like, I call Jeff and I'm like, I know you're going to think this is super stupid, (laughs) but I'm having dinner with Mike and he wants to fight this guy. So Jeff says, I'll call you back in a few minutes. He calls me back and he goes, okay. He goes, I can make that happen. But the person that Mike wants to fight wants to make sure Mike isn't going to do anything crazy. Mm -hmm. So he wants to meet a man to man tomorrow. And talk it over between the two of them, just alone. And if they agree that this is okay, then we'll move forward with it. So they fly to a secret meeting that nobody even knows about. And Steve made the whole thing happen. You know, Steve's like, "I'll take care of it." And that is an accurate. You know, I'll take care That's of it.
0: Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Sometimes
1: I pull a muscle when I'm doing my Steve imitation. Goes too low <laughs> Don't for do me. It too
2: much. Oh, yeah.
1: <laughs> so. Um, he makes it happen. They have this secret meeting. The white smoke comes out of the meeting, you know, and wow. Steve and I are off to Vegas and we are in the middle of the fight of the century. Wow. I mean, it's such a big fight. So we're in the middle of this humongous thing. Now, the regular boxing people had taken over by then, you know, because it was a big thing, but we were still allowed to be around because we kind of came up with the whole thing. right? And so we would go to these crazy meetings and have like six course meals at 2am. They'd say wait here. And I was at a casino. They'd say wait at this uh, slot machine. And I would wait there. And I I thought I was waiting for like 10 minutes, but like eight hours later, (laughs) I was still (laughs) sitting there because I'm too curious to leave. And they come down and get me and they're like, they're ready for dinner now. I'm like, "Um, you know,
0: (laughs) Okay. So, yeah, so the whole thing. (laughs) The joy of youth.
1: Yeah, so yeah, I'm waiting. Yeah, so I'm down there and the whole thing comes together except for there's one more fight in between the fight that we were going to put on and – This other guy had one more fight and he ended up losing, getting knocked out.
0: This is the Riddick fighter.
1: No, no, This was the other fighter. Oh, the So Steve and I are at Steve's house and he's hosting a Texas Hold'em poker tournament. But I'm terrible at poker because I'm very transparent. I hate being told what to do. I don't like being pushed around. It doesn't matter if I have one card and the other one is... On the floor, and I can't even see it, mm-hmm. I'll go all in if somebody challenges me because I do not i won't give I won't give away so I'm trying to commit poker suicide like I want out so badly because there's a fight about to start, and it's not just a fight, it's the fight like Steve, our whole future is right. riding on this fight so Steve, you know he's really good at poker and and I'm watching and all of a sudden I'm seeing things are not going well at all and in front of our eyes, our entire future <laughs> exploded in a moment. <laughs> <laughs> One punch and our whole future was over with. Everything died and we were done. And so I said to Steve, well, maybe we should just, it's been great being with you. It's been great, you know, being your partner through this. Maybe we should just do what we both do, which is make television shows. And so we became partners and we had another partner that Steve had um, prior to me, named Eric, and I joined them. And
0: well, it made I mean, it Asylum was, Entertainment was a huge success.
1: It was all plus Steve. you
0: make a show that everybody that Are every contract to know, say it was all
1: Steve it was all Steve <laughs> <laughs> Steve <laughs> it was all God. you <laughs> Steve yeah, <sorry. laughs>
0: 30 for 30 is a amazing show.
1: We were very fortunate, I think, to... The Wayne Gretzky piece yeah. was... Mm-hmm. That was the, the Gretzky piece, which, again, Steve and his dad share this passion for hockey. And Steve's family, obviously, is in the sports business, too. And like a lot of sons, sometimes they're not as interested in the family business. You know, like when I'm around, you know, the business or the sports business, I'm like a kid in a candy store. I mean, but we were very fortunate to be able to get involved with 30 for 30 early. But Stephen and his dad, like I said, are humongous kings kings. fans. So doing the Wayne Gretzky story,
0: that was amazing.
1: I mean, Steve was out of his mind with happiness and joy. Like this was everything, you know, and when Wayne Gretzky, you know, when they did the premiere at, um, at the Paley Center in Beverly Hills, it was the first ever 30 for 30 to go on the air. So they did this big event for it. And Wayne Gretzky was there and he, you know, stood up and he spoke Steve's name.
0: Oh my God! I mean,
1: he—it's kind of like Oprah speaking your name, right? <laughs> like you know, like he spoke Steve's name, and I—you know—everybody was just you know, so it was just cool. like this—you know—wave of amazing that came over I know. All I remember
0: when he left and came to America, Canada was weeping. And, yeah, we were bummed out, yeah. Was, but he's a fantastic guy. No, it's really important. I mean, the partnership that you and Steve have is just incredible. Look at you, all the nice things that have happened to you in your life, all the people that have crossed your path. <laughs> I've been very your fortunate. Your relationship with your wife is the sweetest thing ever. Mm. She is the cutest thing. She, she has the nicest yeah. heart. She's, she's a the lovely. Oh, she's a wonderful person. She's
1: the best person. And you know, what's great about her is there are a lot of people that you might I'd say, oh, they're the best person, or they're a great person. But Jennifer and I are weird in exactly the same ways, right? Like, so it's effortless and exciting to be married to her. It's not like there's, you know, people say, well, marriage is about compromise. Well, mine's not because <laughs> it was almost like I was walking along by myself, and somebody came up and put their hand in mine and just kept walking. There was mm-hmm. never a misstep. There was nof- nothing. It's just now, the been, two
0: of you. The, the word you know, that I think about when I see the two of you together is symmetry.
1: You know, people always say, well you know, what do you love about them? Or, you know, why do you love them? Or why did you fall in love with them? And I honestly could not answer the question. And I, Je- my love with Jennifer isn't about anything. So no matter what gets destroyed or what happens to me or what happens to her, like, it's not about that. It's not about her being beautiful and funny and smart and, the mother of dragons slash puppies that she's become and, you know, the love that she, it's not about her taking care of me. It's not, it's not about any of it. It's just, I just love her. My life's a lot better having her in it. Cause I always wanted to be alone after, you know, I'm just, I love being alone. So I never thought that I would be with somebody that way again. And the decision was no decision, but really the idea of it was it's more fun, better in every way to be with Jennifer than it is to be alone. I'm just, I'm curious, how did you meet I don't think I've ever really told this story publicly, but I was invited back to Shippensburg University, which is a state school in Pennsylvania that I went to because one of my favorite people in the world who was a client wore my Shippensburg sweatshirt on one of their shows. And the wardrobe people liked it because it's a weird name and they left a minute. So Shippensburg being a school that doesn't get that much attention – they called me to give me the graduate of the year for, for the communications department because somebody wore my sweatshirt on a TV show. So I wanted to see my roommate from college who lived still in the area with his wife and new kids. And so I accepted the trip to go back there. And I had my office at MTV when I got that. And I went back there and they assigned me to coeds to take care of me while I was there to show me around, make sure I knew where I was supposed to be and all that. As it turns out, one of them was Jennifer. But that was a very, very, very long and winding road to us being together beforehand, you know? So I was as I was leaving, Jennifer had been on like a spring break MTV show. And so she said, hey, I was on MTV. And I'm like, okay. Um, <laughs> so she said, hey, listen, you know, my friends and I have never been to California. We were thinking about going there for spring break. Is it okay if we stay at your house? <laughs> But, you know, we're from Pennsylvania. You know, we leave the doors open and, you know, and keys in your car. So I'm like, sure, I'm not going to be there when you're coming, but I'll leave the key under the mat and you guys can stay there. So they did. And I saw them for probably a half an hour at the end of their trip, right before they had to go to the airport. I really didn't spend any time with them at all. So they went back and Jennifer contacted me again as she was getting ready to graduate. And she said, I'm going to move to California. Is it okay if I stay at your house? (laughs) So... (laughs) I'm like, um, okay. So she comes and stays at the house for like four or five days. And uh, there's no connection between the two of us at all. I'm killing myself working. I'm trying to recover from, you know, the circumstances around my marriage. I'm trying to be a good dad and, you know, all these things. And so she came for like four or five days and we really didn't interact that much. And then she disappeared into California for like seven years, something like that. And she...
0: And you never thought about her during those seven years? No,
1: I never had a connection to her that way. I mean, it was more, She could call me if she needed anything. Mm -hmm. So she comes out and she disappears into California and she becomes this incredible grown-up person. And we saw each other maybe once during that whole time, but she would ask me questions or stay in contact here and there. But I was starting my, you know, life with Steve. Mm -hmm. And it was intense. Yeah, it was intense. (laughs) So I, you know, I was balancing all that stuff. I wasn't even thinking about my dating life. I didn't date for a really, really long time. And Jennifer, I guess, was living in Calabasas where, you know, I live. And I never saw her or ran into her or anything like that, but she got in contact with me one day. Our birthdays are six days apart. And she said, Hey, I'm going to be leaving Calabasas. You know, could I come over and, you know, uh, celebrate our birthdays? We'll go out to dinner or whatever. I'm like, No, no, I don't think so. (laughs) And the last time we had been out, we had had sushi together. And I remember I was leaving. I felt like a little uncomfortable. Like I had like some sort of a connection to her that I wasn't interested in. And so I just kind of cut it off. But it was there and so when she wanted to do this i was like this is just just annoying for me like she doesn't look at me like i'm a man <laughs> she you know she i mean she just doesn't think You're about like me an that w- yeah like i'm you know like somebody she can call if she has a you know you know, like I'm on star as a human being and um, not that she ever really did, but that was sort of the relationship. And so I just kept saying no, because, she, you know, who wants to be around somebody that you're attracted to that doesn't even consider you a man? So I'm like, just stay away from me. I don't need you to be around me. I wasn't telling her this, but that's what was that's going how on. how you were feeling. Yeah. yeah. And so she, you know, was a little bit persistent. So like on the 23rd, which is right between our birthdays, we ended up having dinner and I was really sick of her not even thinking about me. <laughs> I guess, like I was really hurting me.
0: Were you assuming that she wasn't thinking about you? No, she you? wasn't.
1: You can ask her. She was not. Okay. Yeah. So we get back to my house where, her, you know, she had driven there and we had driven together. And I had just built a new gym in my house. And she said, you know, can I see the gym? Because she's into fitness. And, you know, so she goes into the gym and she's looking at it. And I kept thinking to myself, why is this going this way? Why is it so like it's nothing? It's like I'm not even on a radar anywhere. And I remembered, oh, I'm from Pennsylvania and so is she. And I thought about – I know this is crazy, but I thought about that movie Superman 2 II or 3 or whatever where the three Superman villains are trapped in outer space and then they're released into the, you know, our world and they have the same powers as Superman because they're exa- where he's from. They're made out of exactly the same stuff he's from, which is why it was such a – difficult fight and I thought oh my gosh Jennifer is made from all the same things I am and in Pennsylvania <laughs> we do things this way not right. the way in California like you know it's a much more open yeah, move forward yeah, and like, yeah, yeah. I mean she's like if I anything is going to happen it's on me like I'm going to yeah. have to be you know a man about it and right. do something so you know we were walking I remember we were walking back through the hallway and I you know grabbed her gently by the hand and I spun her around and I picked her up and I set her on the banister and I went to kiss her. And I thought, she only has two choices. She's either going to kiss me back or she's going to fall over the side of the banister. <laughs> so I figured it can't be that bad. So, uh, yeah, know, uh, that was like our first moment together. And, and she kissed you back. Yeah, she did. And I think she was surprised. I think oh, if you asked her, she I was love so
0: romantic. Story. Yeah. Oh. She,
1: I mean, it yeah. wouldn't have been romantic if she fell off the back yes, of it. But that would know, have yes. been bad. Yeah. That would but, have been bad. You know, she, um, and here you are. And yeah.
0: she she's lovely. Yeah, she's the best. Lovely. Best. We've now reached the end of part one of the Jonathan Koch interview. Because of the length and substance of his story, our producers have separated it into two episodes for you. To keep listening to Jonathan and the story of his miraculous turnaround from near death to recovery, be sure to click on the next episode, part two, with Jonathan Koch.
2: Thanks for listening to Say It Forward. Help us grow by subscribing to our podcast. Please subscribe on iTunes or at www.sayitforwardpodcast.com. Don't forget to rate and review us on the iTunes store or like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram.